Friday was a memorable day on the calendar and in the hearts of people across the United States and even beyond all of that. September 11, 2001 will be a day not soon forgotten, certainly not among us. We were shocked, we were terrified, we were wondering about all kinds of things when the terrorist attacks took place on our home soil. We promised never to forget. We promised to remember, and we do, and I trust we will continue to do, even as we teach our young who may not have been around at that time. We remember the day, but I hope and pray we also remember the day after and the days that followed when we as a people, as a country, came together, perhaps as never before. Today, I want us to focus on another important occasion, one that took place many, many years even before 9-11. We don't know the exact date, but it was a crucial time, a crucial event for one man named Joseph and his 11 brothers. It was equally important and equally momentous for them, and when you come to think about it, for us too. It was something that few of us perhaps remember, but today we are going to remember because 11 brothers needed it, and so do we. There are a lot of things we need, right? There's food, there's drink, there's oxygen. Well, and I suppose you could make more to the list than that. 1943, there was a man by the name of Abraham Maslow, and he put into writing and into a diagram human beings' most basic needs. It was called Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And he shaped it in forms of a pyramid. And at the base of the pyramid were the most important things. Things like I just mentioned, physical needs. And the next higher level, but equally, but somewhat still very important, were safety needs. And moving up the triangle or the pyramid were needs for belonging and needs for love. And reaching close to the top, there were self-esteem needs as he figured out the needs of people. And then what he called self-actualization. Fancy psychologist named for being fulfilled, of life meaning something, ourselves meaning something. A lot to learn there. But he forgot one thing one crucial thing. What we need, everybody needs, is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Ever since Eve first took and ate the forbidden fruit, whatever fruit that was, we talk about apples, scholars sometimes conclude it was a pomegranate, doesn't matter. At the point at which she ate the forbidden fruit, and passed it off to Adam, and he took a bite, the world changed. Once and for all, the world changed. A perfect relationship, perfect relationships were damaged, ruptured, broken. Now between man and wife and human beings and nature, but between God and humans. There was a rift. There was a chasm a rupture, a barrier 
even greater than the kinds of things we're experiencing with COVID-19. This was deep. This was huge. And it wasn't just for Eve and Adam. This distance, this separation is for all of us who are their children. In fact, if we want to think that was just for them, we read the New Testament and St. Paul delivering God's word said, when they fell, we all fell. When they were separated from God and from one another, guess what? We all inherited that, that condition, that circumstance. Fallen people with separation between us and God. And ever since that moment, however, God has been at work, at work restoring the relationship, bringing about, reestablishing the unity, reassuring us that he is our God and we belong to him. How did he do that? From Old Testament days, he enacted a wide-ranging practice of sacrifices. It was oxen, it was lambs, it was fish, it was birds offered, offered in sacrifice, put on an altar, killed and burnt, blood sacrifices that God proclaimed to be what bridged the gap, which brought him and people back together. It started out that way in New Testament days until one man showed up, Jesus. Jesus, the God-man. The God, the Son of God, come from heaven to earth, born of Mary. You see, and the very nature of Jesus spells out his mission. The Son of God, born of a human being, bringing the two together in his very being, is the illustration of what God was up to. Bringing heaven and earth together, bringing him and humanity together in that one person, Jesus Christ, who made a sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice. He put himself, he let himself be put on the cross. And it was there on the cross that God and humanity came together. It was Jesus who broke down however you want to think about the dividing wall of hostility between God and us, or closing the chasm, the great chasm. The cross is all about that. It's important. We need to know. And it is something we know, but it's important that we understand that the cross is what secured our forgiveness once for all never needing to be repeated, that ultimate final sacrifice. And you know there's something interesting about that? When the temple was destroyed in New Testament days, not one more sacrifice was ever made from the Jewish people toward their God to bring them together through forgiveness of sins. Never one more, not even to this day, is a sacrifice offered that fact alone tells us what we know from Scripture that Jesus was the one, the only one, the final one, the ultimate sacrifice. The other lack, the lack of other sacrifices speaks loudly. Forgiveness. This is where Joseph comes in, but perhaps not remembered. In a big way, 
Joseph is about forgiveness. His is a long story. As you page through the book of Genesis in the beginning, it begins in chapter 13 and goes to chapter 50. 26% of that book is all about Joseph. And we learn a lot about him. And we learn a lot about from him and what he experienced. Uh, remember, let me f- refresh your memory. Uh, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the favored one of Jacob. Remember the coat of many colors? Or as the play put it, the technicolor dream coat? He was favored. And he had dreams. He had dreams of being great and ruling over his brothers. His brothers didn't quite like that very much. And they saw the rift. They created, they understood the rift. So much so did they hate it that they sold him into slavery. Threw him in a dry well, and when passersby came, sold him as a slave to be taken off to Egypt, where he began to live a new life. He was a servant in Potiphar's house, at least until... Potiphar's wife claimed that he had raped her, and then his circumstances changed as he was sent to prison for a long time with others. They had dreams, more dreams he interpreted, and set them free. Well, one free and one to death. He was restored to rulership when he was able to interpret the dreams of the Pharaoh and to understand famine and then before it, great crops. We remember his help for his brothers who came from a land far away to get the food to help sustain them. But there's one more thing that maybe we don't so often think about, but we did hear about this morning. There's chapter 50 that brings everything to an end about Joseph's story, not just his death, but what happened just before his death. It's equally important in a final act, a final act of Joseph that you and I may consider his last will and testament. It was his last act given at the behest of Father Jacob, who said to his other sons, go to Joseph, go to Joseph and ask for forgiveness. And that's exactly what they did. And Joseph's legacy to his brother was to forgive them. Forgiveness was a huge need because all the evil they had done to him, for all the ways that they had hurt him, for all the ways that they had rejected him, they were afraid that Joseph was now, as a ruler during his last days, would put into place punishments to get even or even more than even. But Joseph, you heard, forgave his brothers. Surprisingly, unpredictably, he forgave them. They didn't deserve it. Not for what they did repeatedly to him. For all the evil they had done, they did not deserve his forgiveness. But Joseph gave him forgiveness. And he reassured them that with that forgiveness, he would not get even. He would not try to settle the score. Can you think about that for a moment? Imagine. Imagine if you were Joseph, or just imagine him and his circumstance. How could he possibly forgive those jealous, 
hateful brothers. Forgiving them must have gone against every human inclination he had, just as it would go against every human inclination we have today. That forgiveness was nonsense. It didn't make any sense at all, nor does it today to forgive somebody their wrongs. But that's what forgiveness is. Understand, forgiveness is nonsense. It is nonsensical. It doesn't make to our senses a whole lot of truth, a whole lot of purpose. It doesn't seem right. Getting even is what is natural. Evening the score or maybe even adding a little bit more, that's what usually happens. Forgiveness is deciding not to get even, to not get revenge. And listen, forgiveness is never, never, ever deserved. You've heard this and so have I so many times. Someone will say, that person I I can't forgive, I won't forgive. That person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. And it's like, oh my goodness. Do you possibly understand what forgiveness is? There is no reason in the offender to forgive. To forgive the offender is nonsense. If there was something in that offender, it wouldn't be forgiveness that would be offered. Forgiveness has everything to do with not the person who has done wrong, but the person who's called to issue that forgiveness. It has nothing to do with us. Forgiveness has everything to do with God and what he's done through his son, Jesus. And so it is for us in our forgiveness. It is a conscious decision to let it go. Consequences, they're there. But to let it go, to to unloose the burden from ourselves as the offended, and to lift and remove the burden from the one who has offended, so that neither one of us has to live under the weight of that burden, so that neither one of us has to look over our shoulders and wonder and, and worry and be troubled by what had happened. Our forgiving is secure in Jesus. And our forgiving is tied to forgiving others. Understand this and get it clearly in mind. If it's not there already, remember it. The cross, the cross says it all. In making the sign of the cross, forgiveness from God to us, to us. That same forgiveness given one to another. The two parts of the cross, the two parts of forgiveness, the reassurance all around. Remember today's gospel reading. Peter thought he was pretty good by saying, how about I forgive seven times? Well, it was Jesus' exact point that we forgive, not because a person deserves it, not because it's limited to a number of times, but because of Jesus. That's the point of his parable. That's the point of the prayer he gave us to pray and that we pray often, the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And to make sure that that petition didn't get lost in the midst of the prayer, you know what Jesus said right after he gave us that prayer? He said, if you don't forgive other their sins, your heavenly Father 
will not forgive you your sins. So tied to each other are the two. Forgiveness from God for us, forgiveness one to another. This is critical. We need the forgiveness, and we need to forgive others. That's the it that Joseph did. That's the it that gives assurance and reassurance time and again. That's why St. Paul wrote, remembering these things, he wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see how he tied the two together? He did the very same thing in Colossians when he wrote, bear with each other and forgive one another if any one of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Powerful. Time and again. Not just seven times, but 70 times seven, Jesus told Peter. He didn't mean 490 times, and when we reach that, we're done. It's always, every time. No doubt you and I have passed 490 times with God, and anyone can pass 490 times with us if we're keeping count. But so we are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Now, I know it's hard. <laughs> Personal, personally, it's very difficult. But you know what? Sometimes we just have to say it. We have to say, I forgive you. We have a family custom, sometimes observed and not as often as we wish. When somebody gets hurt or someone does the other wrong in the family, after one admits that, we are to say, the rule goes, I forgive you. Sometimes those words come hard. We'd rather just nod our head or say, that's okay. But best we decided to say, I forgive you. Sometimes it's hard not just to say the words, but to have them real in our lives. Sometimes, family and beyond, we just first of all need to say the words and then let the words work on us as well working on the offender. It may take time for us to grow into it. It may take time for the offender to grow into that forgiveness too. But we say the words to let it take root and calm our hearts as assurance, as reassurance. And to help us, there's at least two things remembering in Jesus that we are forgiven, and then to latch hold again and again of the power of his Holy Spirit to be able to do what we want in Christ to do. We talk about needs. If we put our finger on common needs, we can list all kinds of things, but at the very base is forgiveness. It's what we all need, and it gives us the greatest assurance. We need to hear those words from God and from others. Joseph's life ended on that very note with words of forgiveness for the other 11. A positive, a high note, a conclusion to his life. And our calling, our responsibility, and our privilege is to forgive as we have been forgiven. Look at the word. Think of it. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is forgiving. It makes sense. So let's do it. That's the best reassurance we can get and we can give. In the name of Jesus. Amen.